up. And you're finally appreciated after all those years of jokes. <laughs> so, uh, in Eastern Canada, it's so incredibly different than Western Canada. Just the way, uh, see, you didn't think I was going to come here and give you a talk about, about Canada. When I go out west, it varies from, you know, the electric excitement uh, around Vancouver to the absolutely deadening, uh, oh, what's the big government city? Saskatoon, where nothing is edible <laughs> at all, and you wonder how people can stay alive. <laughs> anyway, so... So thank you for uh, coming. Thank you for inviting me to, to join uh, uh, the other speakers. Okay. Uh, you're coming to all of these talks. There's a good friend of mine speaking. Uh, I think he's the last speaker, Matt Hearn. Uh, does anybody know Matt? Well, if you come to the Matt Hearn talk, and there's a question and answer session afterwards. If you begin to address him as Yo Matt, Yo Matt, there, after about the third or fourth question, he'll know who put the B in your bond. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Sarah, where are you? I'm right here. Uh, uh, you tell me, give me the high sign. Do you mind if we take a while to before we Not at all. All right. The coming announcements. Do you want to use the mic? Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming out tonight. We're going to make a couple of small announcements before we begin. And then Mr. Gavin can speak for as long as he'd like. And then we're going to take a small break and then begin the Q&A session. So feel free to stick around for that. Announcement number one. Hello. Um, I just wanted to uh, mention that for uh, reasons that are beyond us, the uh, University of Ottawa's faculties decided to uh, only minimally fund us, um, I guess because we're challenging some of the things that they're promoting, but anyway, <laughs> because of this, we are still quite short on our expenses, so considering we have tried our best to make this conference completely free, uh, and we're still a little bit short. We're going to pass around a donation box during the break between the talk and the questions. And if you could make a donation, that would be fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. We also have um, the Exile Info Shop, who've been kind enough to buy some stock, uh, books related to materials that we're going to talk about during the course of the conference. They're at the back of the room with the big banner on the wall. And you can check them out for literature of all kinds, from radical pedagogy to de-schooling and unschooling to anything else you can think of. And we can also take special orders if we don't have items that you're interested in, or if they're interested, items that you're interested in that we don't carry. Um, and for those of you who don't have a program yet, you can pick one up at the back of the room on your way out or during the break. And do you like a formal introduction, or are you just like... <laughs> what do you want to do? You don't care? <laughs> okay, I'll say a couple of like just brief words for those of you who are not familiar with John Taylor Gatto. Um, 
back in 1989, 1990, and 1991, I believe, he was named New York City uh, Teacher of the Year, and in 1991, New York State Teacher of the Year, and later that year, resigned or retired from the teaching profession under the premise that, or with the statement that he could no longer hurt kids to make a living, suggesting that the school system is quite damaging to students or to children. That was on the op-ed page of the Wall Street Journal, so it had a certain resonance. <laughs> so, a little over a year ago, I became fortunate enough to come across one of his books, Dumbing Us Down which was actually published in 1992. The full title is Dumbing Us Down, The Hidden Curriculum of Compulsory Schooling. And this book pretty much revolutionized the way I understand schooling and education. Uh, in the book, he essentially argues that rather than educating people and teaching students, like this, instilling the students a love of learning, uh, the schooling system actually inhibits the learning process that can actually be damaging to students and to the process of learning that could be so wonderful and so remarkable and yet somehow isn't. I mean, who here knows students who just dread going to school every day? I do. I'm one of them. <laughs> so, um, one of the lines that really caught my attention in dumbing us down was somewhere near the middle where he says, after an adult lifetime spent teaching school, I believe the method of mass schooling is its only real content. So in other words, instead of learning math or science or English or geography, instead we're really learning seven specific lessons. These lessons include confusion, class position, indifference, emotional dependency, intellectual dependency, or what I would call institutional dependency, um, provisional self-esteem, and the fact that you can't hide, which is somewhat likened to um, Michel Foucault's concept of the panopticon, which you may or may not be familiar with. And so, that really revolutionized the way I understood schooling in my own life. And so, on somewhere else in the middle of the book, he says that at the core of this elite system of education, is the belief that self-knowledge is the only basis of true knowledge. And that everywhere in this system, at every age, you will find arrangements that work to place the child alone in an unguided setting. Oh, no, that's something else. Sorry. My mistake. <laughs> something else. But the part that matters is that this is setting the basis for what he's going to talk about today during the talk. The idea of self-motivated learning and open-source learning, as he calls it. So, without... For the digging myself a hole, here is John Taylor Gatto. You probably noticed before very long that I'm working from a script. I want you to know that I could throw this script away, bar those doors, and I could speak to you all night long. But this script is to protect you. <laughs> when I originally uh, spoke with Sarah, uh, it was my intention to come up here and make a presentation from the book that I'm completing now called 
weapons of mass instruction. But somehow or other, I forgot that we had made that arrangement. And so you're going to get a different presentation, but I'll give you a, a sample of what I mean by weapons of mass instruction. Those are very, very precise tools buried into the structure of schooling that prevent the development of imagination in particular, intellect, initiative. I know that sounds conspiratorial. It's not intended to be. And I'd like to justify temporarily the people who gave us this form of instruction of the young without any exception at all from the intellectual community. The idea of education itself for the last 500 years has been worse than sneered at by major intellectuals. They simply claim that it's impossible. It can't take place. And I'd like to just briefly walk you through a few of those, even though that was not my intention when I sat down up here. But I think that rather than just being some raving lunatic from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, I'll show you what the hidden foundation of, of my own research has been. In uh, the 16th century, uh, a major theological figure, John Calvin, whose influence still is all over Canada and the United States and most of the world, uh, wrote an enormous book called Institutes of the Christian Religions, four really large volumes. And since Calvin was a first-class legal mind, not, not initially a theologian, uh, it's written with this tremendous intellectual rigor. In it, Calvin says that you've heard the idea of predestination, but here are some of its implications. Calvin says that since the unfolding of human society and human life was known before the possibility existed that most of the people born and who live on this planet are doomed and there's no possible way for them to redeem themselves. They're doomed to eternal torment. Now, notice that the initial, the original Christian idea, which we would call the Catholic idea today, is sin and redemption. But at the core of Calvinist predestination, which had an immense influence, certainly on this part of the world, but perhaps the most important influence was this idea, the vast mass of the population could not be redeemed whatever they did. Notice what that does to the idea of education. And suspiciously, I think, where we get the very first forced schooling laws is straight out of the Calvinist 
community. They couldn't actually make those laws work, but they passed the laws and tried to make them work. But they had no intention of accepting the idea that some child of the damned, himself or herself damned, could be redeemed. Now, I know that you're all modern Canadians, and you say, well, we don't think that way anymore. Okay. In 1670, perhaps one of the three or four most potent philosophers in modern history, Benedict Spinoza, I know that he's carried in the libraries Baruch Spinoza. He never signed his name Baruch Spinoza, but always Benedict. But Benedict Spinoza, known in the university community as a liberal thinker actually said that almost every, notice the connection I'm about to show you between him and Calvin, uh, although Spinoza was rabidly anti-religious. Uh, Spinoza said that the vast majority of the human race is permanently irrational and dangerous. And the only way, 1670 is the book, it's Tractatus Religico Politicus. That's the name of the book, and I'll bet you it'll be in the public library system of Ottawa, and certainly in the university system. In Tractatus, Spinoza said to the reigning heads of European governments, and he was intensely read by the founders of the United States, he said that because of this permanent disability of irrationality, some way had to be found to bind the common population, fill its head with illusions, destroy its ability to imagine, which is what really made, made it dangerous. In other words, he created the clear idea and purpose for institutional public schooling. If you ever read Thomas Jefferson, who's a wonderful American figure, Jefferson said that schooling would be a mere civil religion. I, so I knew he had read Spinoza, because civil religion is what Spinoza intended to create to replace inspirational religion civil religion. School would be a civil religion. And Jefferson said, school has only five justifications. To teach people their rights is first and foremost, and to teach them how to defend their rights is an essential reciprocal of that, because if you know your rights and don't know how to defend them, uh, that they're, they're simply an abstraction. Then he said it would be justified if it taught useful knowledge, such as building a house, building a boat, making clothing, growing food, etc., etc. If it taught an ever-present skepticism against expertise, because Jefferson knew that the Greeks had scorn for specialists and experts, believing that anyone 
who's crazy enough to unbalance their life that way might be useful in limited situations, but clearly they had bad judgment and probably were dishonest there. So it was to, to teach experts to stay in their places because they would have bad judgment. And finally, it was to know the ways of the human heart so well that you could neither be cheated nor fooled. And Jefferson said, if schools don't teach those five things, they're a mere civil religion, plugging into Spinoza's fervent hope for schooling, that it would replace religions. And I'm taking you from Calvin, intensely... God-soaked, to Spinoza, uh, so purely atheistic that he was pitched out of his synagogue and they said, don't come back. <laughs> but I can go a little bit farther than that, and I really should. The major intellectual thinker who ended the idea romantic idea that ordinary people could be educated was Charles Darwin. I understand that everyone sitting here believes that they have a pretty fair idea of what Darwin had on his mind, but I urge you to read a book published in North America in 1871 called Descent of Man. I know you're all familiar with Origin of Species, which is 1859, but his really potent book came out in 1871 in which Darwin said that evolution wasn't occupying all the creatures on Earth, but only a small fraction of them were evolving and everybody else was just dead weight, was evolutionarily retarded and now get ready for the big breakthrough that electrified management circles all over uh, North America and the European world and as far away as Japan. Darwin said that if the evolutionarily retarded, who are about 19 people out of 20, intermarried with the good stuff, evolution would march backwards into the swirling mists of the dawnless path. In other words, if you are a responsible person of, uh, of some uh, uh, social clout, it was your job to keep the bad stuff away from the good stuff, and the bad stuff outnumbered the good stuff 19 to 1. Here, Calvin's idea and Spinoza's idea suddenly got scientific justification. And the idea that you would cloud the minds of the evolutionarily retarded through an institution of mass schooling had real ethical and moral justification. You were simply enhancing the forward march of evolution. You won't have learned this, I don't mean this in any way uh, as a criticism of the University of Ottawa, but you will not have learned this 
in any class at the University of Ottawa from 1890 until through the 1920s, through the 1930s actually, uh, at major universities there were classes that taught a seminar elite, handpicked by the professor, how to take charge of evolution and guide it efficiently. Uh, in the United States, and perhaps in Canada too, the movement was called Bionomics. About six years ago, I got an invitation from the Libertarian Cato Institute to make a talk in San Francisco at the Mark Hopkins Hotel at the sixth and sixth annual Bionomics Conference. To say that the hair stood up on my head, but you know. Anyway, anyway. So uh, what Bionomics was about was keeping the bad stuff from getting in the way of the good stuff. And the first president of Stanford University, David Starr Jordan, was the star bionomical expert of the world, and he selected Elwood P. Coverley, his star pupil in bionomics, to be the first Dean of Education at Stanford University. If you pick up a copy of a very, very scholarly textbook, not conspiracy data, but that's used in graduate schools of education, uh, uh, David Tyack is the author. It's called Managers of Virtue, about the founders of forced schooling. In Canada, your big name is Edgerton Ryerson, who was a good friend of Horace Mann down in the States. But in both places, the principal figures were bionomically trained. So that the mass of data is really overwhelming. It's simply that none of it, all of it is accessible, but how could it be accessible unless you knew that this was a driving theme in modern Western life, but particularly in the United States and Canada, because we had more energy than the rest of the world. Uh, I certainly, you see, I don't have any trouble ad-libbing. This has nothing to do with it. No, it does, it does, because some of the things I'll say in the talk, you might wander out there and say, what is he, nuts? There. I, I, I just want to give you an, uh, one more name. Uh, psychology, which is certainly uh, one of the major profit pictures in the whole university world uh, these days, was a minor branch of philosophy until the laboratories of a fellow named Wilhelm Wundt at the University of Leipzig got up and running in the slightly after the middle of the 19th century and 
sons of the wealthy from all over the world, but particularly from the United States and Canada, went to Germany to study at the University of Berlin and particularly to study under Wilhelm Wundt a bit at Leipzig. And Wundt taught that most everybody was, in fact, a flesh and blood machine, but that most of those machines were defective and could not be corrected. They could be adjusted temporarily. That's where the word adjustment comes from. But they would always go out of adjustment again and again. So ways had to be found, uh, social technological ways found, to keep the bad machinery from messing up the good machinery. These are the major things. And there's lots, lots more. There's no one, in fact, who stands counter to this. Uh, so, this is how we got universal forced schooling. Obviously, there was a, a widespread impulse to, to, to be literate and uh, to, to, to learn to use uh, your mind the way you could see the more successful people used your mind, but that was taken advantage of by social engineers working in the interest of this grand intellectual scheme. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed at all. This impulse is just much, much more uh, better organized, and technology allows the surveillance of each one of you. I mean, while you're sitting here, I've had cookies planted in your computers that are studying every movement you make. Uh, okay, uh, so I call this talk originally Weapons of Mass Instruction. I want to tell you where the idea came from. I got an award from a foundation, I think four years ago, in Washington, D.C. And when I went down there to get it, there were other people receiving the same award, and one of them was an 11 year old. Chinese immigrant boy named Andrew Su, TSU, from the Seattle area, 11 years old. He was getting his award for having sequenced genes held in common between mice and human beings. So <laughs> I looked down at Andrew, he just was a little slip of a guy, and I said, how uh, how did you get interested in uh, sequencing mouse genes, Andrew? <laughs> <laughs> now you would think that he was the son of uh, some holders of university chairs, but in fact he was the son of waiters. I mean menials in the American economic system. His first language was in English. He was from Taiwan. And uh, he had won the Washington State Science Fair. Not the school science fair, the Washington State Science Fair with his gene sequencing. So we were getting, and I said, okay. So 
how come you weren't playing baseball? <laughs> he said, my grandfather told me a story when I was little. I'm just an 11-year-old kid. <laughs> but you're about to hear about four-year-old kids in a few minutes. But this 11-year-old kid said, when I was little, my grandfather taught me how to train fleas. Now, oddly enough, I knew a lot about trained fleas. I mean, you, you, when I came to New York City from Pittsburgh back in the early 1950s, there actually was a flea circus on 42nd Street and Broadway. You had to get down two stories under the street. It was called Hubert's Flea Circus. And by God, for a quarter, you'd want Hubert would stick his arm out and feed the fleas first. And then they would swing on trapezes. They would draw little chariots. They would fence with swords. And it was just uncanny. So I, I, I had a brief... Uh, uh, affection for uh, trained fleas, and I discovered that in all the great courts of uh, Asia, and some of them in Europe, you weren't anybody unless you had trained fleas. <laughs> so what did Andrew teach me about trained fleas that I didn't know? He said, you can't train fleas until you break their will. jump out and head off in every direction because they have an agenda of their own. He said, but to eliminate their personal agendas, you put a lid on the Petri dish and you go away for two hours. When you come back, they've hurt themselves so badly leaping to get out of the dish and never being able to budge that lid an inch that when you take the lid off, Picture this in your head. This is life-changing. Not one of the fleas will try to get out of the dish. He said, now they're in a state where they can be trained. Instantly upon him finishing that sentence, I knew what I had been hired to do for 30 years. I was the lid on that dish. And as long as I and my colleagues could frustrate the personal agendas often enough, very few of them, if any, would survive. And they then could be conditioned to the purposes of, let's say, management. Let's call it management. Uh, so I saw that one of the prime weapons of mass instruction was this ability to frustrate uh, in individual initiative. Then, this is almost the equivalent of that story. A uh, couple of months after that, I got a letter from the publishers of a horse magazine in Frankfort, Kentucky, called 
the Equine Mental Health Journal. Uh, it, you know, I thought I, I heard everything, but I didn't know. It was a journal of uh, horses' mental health. And they had marked an article that they thought I might find interesting. So I read the article. It was about the destructive psychological effects on a horse of being kept in a stall and then only having like a small out outdoor area to run in and never enough room to run with a herd of horses. And when I looked at the list of characteristics that these horses put off, that they balked at learning, that they, 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 they couldn't project a, a stable personality. And so the whole list I could match with effects that I had seen over and over again in the classroom. And I just attributed to bad biology or bad sociology. Uh, so that restricting the space in which uh, a person learns about themselves and about the world, and then keeping the horse, as they said, away from the wisdom of the herd, produces this set of pathologies that you could use if you wish to exclude these horses from any serious competition. So I realized that this was another weapon of mass instruction. And then I began, once that line of uh, reasoning was alive in my mind, I wrote The Seven Lessons School Teacher in Dumbing Us Down, which is a book Sarah said. And that was 12 years ago, and I've now amassed, uh, without straining at all, a large number of weapons of mass instruction, so large and so persistent that they could not happen by accident. They could happen by accident, but they would be self-correcting as people saw the bad effects they produced. And that triggered an intense interest in finding out where this school institution had come from, why it took the shape it took, how it has managed to persist in the face of periodic waves of disgust and public criticism, and always to grow larger more expensive and more time-consuming of the limited uh, uh, period available to, to youth there. So I'm going to stop there now because I'm not going to make this presentation about weapons of mass instruction. But, but you will find in this is called a letter to my granddaughter. My granddaughter is 16. She just went to Dartmouth to interview. Uh, if that sounds like a good thing to anybody sitting here, 
I'm sorry I'm going to have to disappoint you in this presentation. A letter to my granddaughter. It's in two parts. Uh, the, the first is more general than the second, and I'll give you a break between part one and part two. Oh my God, I have to hold this. All right. I call this talk Raising the Bar because the ancient metaphor raising the bar seemed, the first half of called Raising the Bar, seems right for this meeting that, that you and I are at right now because it calls to mind the Olympic ideal to reject ordinary accomplishment, to push into surprising new realms of possibility. In modern sport, raising the bar calls to mind astonishing people like the Canadian from Brantford, Wayne Gretzky, who basically redefined the sport of ice hockey, or Tiger Woods, or Michael Jordan, or Pele in soccer. People who find the stamina and the insight to defy the expected, to show us all a new way to think and be. That's the goal of breaking out of any mental prison, such as the one forced schooling has become. But for managers of the latest mania in school reform, raising the bar means returning institutional schooling to its roots in Prussian life. That's where the world's first successful institutional schooling scheme came to life and people came from all over the planet to study it in Prussia. So the modern calls for reform that ask for longer school days, longer school years, more intensification of testing, more rigid rankings, bigger chunks of undigested material to memorize, more homework, less toleration of free will choice, less attention to those pursuits which enlarge the terrain of the inner life, art, music, drama, philosophy, history, theology, and the like. Less of those and more attention to subjects as disguises hiding their real intent to drill in unbending rules and infinite subordinations. The Prussian idea of raising the bar is just the opposite of the Olympic one. In Prussia, the goal was to transform human beings into machinery. Such a goal arises from the most bleak outlook on human possibility. It's the product of fear, not strength. It's the child of unwholesome pessimism about human nature, such as Charles Darwin. In the United States, recent demands from powerful interest groups to tighten the school screws stem, I think, from our national humiliation and confusion at America's loss of power, its widening social class differences, its declining prosperity and global prestige. They flow from deterioration of a once proud manufacturing nation 
into a land of clerks peddling merchandise made in Asia. It comes from the loss of our small farmer, skilled craftsman, self-reliance, and its replacement with assembly line people controlled by algorithms. It's connected to a sickness of soul about America's having mutated from a land of the free into a mere map location, one managed by spin doctors, not leaders. The Prussian idea of raising the school bar by doing more of the same, even more efficiently, is part of the same disease which has crippled American national inventiveness. At the end of World War II, 90% of all the patents applied for on planet Earth were applied for by American citizens. And since the end of World War II and the rise of big box schooling, that 90% is down into the low 30s and continuing to decline with no hope or prayer of that decline being stemmed. The Prussian vision is always about well-regulated lives beginning in early childhood. Well-regulated lives are always cowardly lives, lives which constantly await orders. Courageous lives require an active imagination and well-developed inner lights. But our modern form of schooling is dedicated, as I told you a minute ago, to the deliberate destruction of imagination following the rationale laid down by the influential Dutch philosopher Spinoza long ago. In the late 17th century, Spinoza advised Western leaders to use a scheme of universal forced schooling that existed at that time nowhere in the world to destroy the imagination of ordinary people because that would make them more manageable less dangerous, and nation after nation followed this counsel until it became universal in the early 20th century. If you want to become a mechanism, and a lot of people do, Prussian schooling is for you. But if you don't, and you want to work toward the Olympic ideal, the biggest roadblock in your path is certain to be yourself and the lifelong conditioning you've been subjected to about what schooling should be and do. For instance, genuine school reform cannot be about raising standardized test scores or rationing up the daily attendance number, not even a little bit. And in a while, I'll get deeply into why not, but take that as an announcement of the topic idea. Uh, it, it's necessary for all of us to admit that such numbers are irrelevant for any sane, any wholesome, or any productive purpose. Even worse, they're actively pernicious. Tests, as the gatekeeper of responsibility, 
destroy national wealth by conferring responsibility on the wrong people. Data generated by these idiotic investments of energy and money has no useful function. It cannot predict anything, and after a century of expensive trying, it's time to be honest enough, if you're a school administrator, to admit this. Test scores correlate with nothing except the next test score. But you can, of course, rig the game to prevent people who haven't been obedient enough to achieve the test score from having opportunity, and that, of course, has been done. Testing, and let, let me prove that to you in a short time, just as in the next 90 seconds, I could teach you to take a $100 bill or a 100 loony bill, go to a local hardware store and build the identical bomb that took the London subway out from common ingredients available in every hardware store in Ottawa or in Canada. Uh, just as I could do that, I think if you follow this closely, you'll see how disutilitarian test scores really are. I can't believe there's anybody sitting in this room who has ever asked any of their friends or made the decision about who to associate with by finding out their test scores or their grade point average. No one in this room who's married used that as a key determinant. When you go to a barber or hire someone to mow your lawn or somebody to take out uh, your appendix, you don't get that information because on some very fundamental level, you know it's worthless. And it could not be used to make the decision in any sensible fashion. Nobody uses that information. And once again, later on, I hope to show you that the world's leaders hold this information in contempt. And I, I deduce that from their own test scores, which I haven't. <laughs> I was uh, about four years ago at a ritzy high school about 50 miles north of New York City in a very wealthy community. And without attempting to rabble, I'd been invited by the school board to speak to the graduating seniors. And what I wanted to do wasn't radicalize them. I wanted to remove that fear and anxiety about test scores. So I simply had a very large list of the actual test scores of national leaders, corporate <laughs> leaders, and I began to read it. God strike me dead if I'm going to say it. The school called the police. They didn't come up and say, They told everyone to return to class. I thought there was a fire in the building. And then they came down and announced to me that, that this lecture is over. Leave the auditorium immediately. I was the fire in the auditorium. And all I had 
centers innocent stuff like, let's take grade point averages, that the, uh, the current uh, president of the United States, the incumbent, uh, was a C student in high school and college. But in the last election, he beat somebody who, was, who flunked out of his first college and was a CD student in his second one, Al Gore. And in his first victory, he beat another C student who he was one point superior to. John F. Kennedy was a C student in high school and a C student in college. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was not only a C student in high school and a C student in college, but he boasted to his mother in a, what was a famous letter in my generation that he had achieved the gentleman C as a freshman at Harvard. It took me about 10 years to discover what that expression meant, the gentleman C. When I finally found out what it meant from a credible source, I knew instantly it was right. To achieve a score higher than a C means that you're some kind of a fool who wasted all his time, you know, copying notes off a board and doing what the teacher said. But the C announces that you're not a boat rocker, but you actually may have a fighting chance to learn something. Uh, Bill Bradley, who was a three-time senator, from uh, the state of New Jersey and a famous basketball player prior to that had a uh, 485 uh, on the language part of his uh, SATs, his college uh, standardized test. He had a 485. Paul Wellstone, who was a legendary senator from Minnesota, I think, or Wisconsin, one of those two states, uh, uh, achieved what amounts to a 50 on his standardized test scores. Uh, in, in a while, I'm going to give you a list that I hope, I hope that you'll think about when you go home, a large list of movers and shakers in your own life who never wasted a day in college. Some of them wasted a couple of courses and basically said, I mean, this is a waste of time. Life's too short to do this. And I know the, and I'm not being sarcastic, I know the University of Ottawa is an exception. So the, the, the first test is examine your personal history and rest assured that as you eliminate this data to make serious decisions, so does anybody else whose head screwed on correctly. Testing is an illusion which helps justify the enormous jobs project of forced schooling. And that, in essence, is what it is, both on the lower school level and on the collegiate level. It's, by and large, a jobs project. There are minor exceptions to that. Uh, 
the price of this jobs project is paid in more than money. Testing operates to suppress real talent. It misdirects attention from important things to less important things. It breaks initiative, and most vital of all, it weakens creativity, and we do not have a prayer of competing with India and China and Malaysia, etc., etc., except through the use of creative imagination. There is no way that we will ever regain productive sovereignty. The Financial Times of London for the last three years has been pointing this out in increasingly less polite ways that anything you can hire done here, let's say on an engineering sense, you can buy from India or China for 15 cents on the dollar, and that India and China together are generating about 10 million trained engineers in excess of their domestic needs. Those people will be roaming the world looking for work at 15 cents on the American-Canadian dollar. I mean, I'm not saying it to be alarming. The government of China has hired me six times because secretly they too know that the productive uh, engine is not where the game is really played. And as I stood the last time in Guangzhou, it used to be called Canton, uh, in, in southern China, which is a city of either 12, 15, or 19 million people, depending on which guidebook you, you pick up, I saw that American imagination, some of it dark imagination, was dominating the city. Let me give you a few examples. I know that uh, the uh, arts tradition and the drama tradition in China is thousands of years old. It's very subtle, very sophisticated, but I didn't see a trace of it in Guangzhou. What I saw were American movies, American traveling singing acts. Uh, none of the big hotels had anything except traveling American acts. There were 10-story high billboards for American movies. Then, in desperation for a cup of coffee, I went into one of the hundreds or thousands of McDonald's and, and its ilk places, and it was packed wall to wall with young Chinese, every single one. There were more, more fast food restaurants than, than you see even in Las Vegas for God's sake, and, and every one of them is filled with young Chinese with computers. I never met a Chinese in China who didn't speak English, and about half of them speak it idiomatically, colloquially. I mean, it was, in a way, it was marvelous. In a way, it was, it was frightening how they learned that, because they're all playing American computer games, you know, and murdering space aliens, or I know, <laughs> monsters, and stuff like that. So the American computer industry, which just swept the board over there, the American entertainment industry swept the board over there. The 
wonderful tradition. My wife's a graduate of the Culinary Institute. That took every cent I earned and saved in my whole life, or we earned and saved. But, 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 but this marvelous tradition of balancing colors and textures and using everything that swims or crawls or flies as, as part of you know, the crunch with your teeth. It had given way to eating this mush. Essentially, McDonald's and the rest of them don't sell a variety of food at all. I know there's a big variety on the menu, but essentially what they sell is very sweet and very salty. You may as well go in and say, give me three very sweets and two very salties. <laughs> it doesn't matter what they give you. The texture is like baby food, and it'll either be very sweet or very salty. The colors are primary colors. I mean, you don't have to be a social... Uh, analysts to, to figure out that it's a profound return to childhood and it's safety. The one advantage they have over the, the Chinese, it, it, really, in quality, is that uh, the toilets work, whereas the Chinese seem to be indifferent to, they uh, in China, I mean, uh, to that. I mean, they concentrate on the real things. Well, so testing is an illusion which helps justify the enormous jobs project of forced school. We're paying the price in the destruction of our creativity. And my primary piece of evidence, there's lots more, is the steep decline in patent applications. The only testing which has any justification at all is performance testing. But for various political reasons, no school on earth would seriously consider using such a thing because it would be certain to embarrass the children of important people and cause a lot of trouble. And raising the bar can't mean beating the drums for college either because that's a phony goal too. America became wealthy, powerful, and at one time widely admired before the college obsession took over. Its beginnings, ironically, can be traced directly to two supremely wealthy elementary school dropouts, John D. Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie, who launched the college obsession through behind-the-scenes social engineering directed out of their corporate non-profit foundations about a century ago, which still worked like the little mill that ground salt uh, to keep this thing uh, healthy. After World War II ended, the scheme took off big time when the United States, terrified by its inability to absorb millions of returning military veterans, who knew how to use weapons and had practiced by murdering people, uh, it, it couldn't absorb them back into its working population, so it sent them off to college to buy time to figure out what to do with them. Eventually, this caused an inflation in school credential job requirements. <coughs> Excuse me. Upon reflection, it isn't very difficult to challenge 
the unexamined assumption that college training is necessary for success in anything. And I'll be illustrating that for you in a few minutes. But before we get to that, think on this dark side of the college obsession. In America, slightly more than half the young are funneled into college. The average amount of time it takes to graduate is six years, not four, and about half who enter eventually do graduate. Deeply in debt, the average debt in the States is $40,000. Nice way to begin your life, huh? In theory, at least, the important work of society is then reserved for this lucky 25%, while the other 75%, again, theoretically, are restricted in opportunity for the rest of their lives. Now, superficially, this might appear only fair, but since the actual value of a diploma is an unproven assumption, the work game has to be rigged to prove the unprovable. A lot of people are aware of this and made angry by it. Worse, by acting as propagandists for college, Lower schools seriously insult and disenfranchise about 75% of the population. Surely that can't be a good thing for national unity or mutual respect, let alone affection. It must lead directly to a class system, just like those of Britain and Germany. It forecloses the fluid egalitarianism of the American founding experiment. The immense competitive advantage that the new nation of the United States had over every other nation came from a weakening of class politics, not the opposite. Early America followed the advice of the great Scottish economist Adam Smith, who said in his masterpiece, The Wealth of Nations, that the secret of prosperity for a nation lay in giving large numbers of ordinary people, people with ideas and energy, seats at the policy table, a real stake in things. Since the end of World War II, the United States has forgotten this, replacing the successful strategy with a star system which infects every aspect of American life, even the clergy, but is worst in school classrooms. Young people often become what's expected of them, so it's disturbing to me that the nation's schools expect so very little from the common population except obedience and faithful subordination, thus burying a vast pool of national wealth. To expand on this, raising the bar can't mean turning up the pressure in a game of winners and losers. To anoint winners as stars requires that many be judged as relative and absolute losers. But mass-producing losers can't be a sane national policy, however convenient it might be, for a classroom teacher to do. 
It smacks of science fiction horror movies, the efficient production of mass respect for most people held captive in institutional schooling is surely ill-advised because, notice I'm not arguing this on moral ground, because losers find ways to get even, as about 30,000 dead and maimed American young men have discovered firsthand in Iraq. Losers have long memories. Now force yourself to answer this question honestly. I'm, I'm, I'm not asking it rhetorically. To try to make a space in your head and think about this. What exactly does dividing the student population into winners, mediocrities, and losers have to do with learning? With learning anything at all except, of course, your place in the social machine. To raise the bar, you have to teach something useful. How to build a house or a boat, grow food, make clothing, entertain yourself, educate yourself, make yourself healthy, win friends, give and receive affection, acquire operating principles, both ethical and practical ones. What is the connection between most of the business of schooling and this degree of practical utility? I'm not saying that none of this is present at all, only that it can't be right to command somebody else's learning time by force of law and then not satisfy that captive that he or she is actually learning something useful. If you can't do that, you must let them go elsewhere. The weaker economic classes and all minority classes expect to be tortured with disrespect in American schools, and we don't disappoint them. When I wrote that, I thought immediately of a wonderful scene in Graham Greene's book, Our Man in Havana. And if you've seen the movie, you will have seen this brought to life. There's this hideous police captain who's known as, I think, the Red Butcher of Havana. He, he tortures people, but he's fallen in love with the daughter of uh, a vacuum cleaner salesman. And when the vacuum cleaner salesman says uh, to him, but, but you torture people, the police, the police captain looks shocked and hurt, and he says, you have hurt my feelings. He said, we are not monsters. We only torture people who expect to be tortured. It's a marvelous insight. We have created this expectation among a huge fraction of the population from different places that doesn't have much money, that the mainstream culture has a right to torture them institutionally. Uh, now, we don't do that down in the States because we're particularly racist. I don't think we are. Uh, but oddly enough, schooling can't work unless it's human units are standardized. 
and standardization does not mean the same thing as high standards. It almost always means elimination of any possibility for high standards because only things that can be described in numbers, quantified, allow standardization. And the very lesson of raising the bar, think of Wayne Gretzky and company, means that the ordinary way, the familiar way, is almost never the best way. That's why these people periodically emerge and surprise us. They've actually looked at the way everyone else does it. It isn't some gift from the divine authority, I don't think. Americans don't tolerate differences very well. We attempt to systematize everything, but in its nature, real learning is not systematic. It's always custom cut. It's always personalized. And yet the very name school tells you what the real intent of the institution is. Think of schools of fish and you'll understand perfectly. One fin moves, they all move at the same time. How do they learn that? <laughs> so the first thing you have to do for your schools and for yourself you have to de-school your schools. You have to desystematize them. And if you can't do that, you should forget talking about raising the bar or improving things. Be careful that you hear what I'm actually saying. It isn't that systematic instruction can't transmit anything of value. Certainly it can. But the most valuable learning cannot be so accomplished. And in that paradox lies your greatest challenge. You must school and not school at one and the same time. Formulas and recipes aren't adequate to this challenge. It calls for an artist's hand, and every student must be the artist in charge of his or her own education. The assembly line nature of official schooling is organized around subjects which are grand gaseous abstractions without much connection to human reality. Reality is much more complex than subjects can deal with. This explains the otherwise bewildering experience that A students in this subject or that often don't do very well when they get out of school. They've become habituated to thinking in subject terms. And the most uh, profoundly radical illustration of that is in the States. I'll bet there's a Canadian analog to this. There's a category called National Merit Scholar, where if you happen to win that honor, you go to any college in the country and all your expenses and your tuition is paid. Doesn't that sound wonderful? They have the highest single rate of suicide of any discrete group in the American population. Why? Because the minute they're turned loose on the world and nobody's there to tell them what to do and pat them on the head, they stand around waiting. They, the initiative is gone. 
The originality is gone. They're looking for somebody to please. And when they can't find the kind of respect that they've been used to, just an alarming number of them, you know, kill themselves. When the young minds are forced into premature specialization through subject training, pathology clouds the ability to see things in bigger context, the ability to balance a variety of perspectives against one another is weakened. In, in common parlance, we lose the ability to connect the dots for ourselves because in school we're asked almost exclusively to memorize the dots. Bits of disconnected information, almost useless outside of intricate contexts, which themselves are seldom offered. You need to raise the bar far enough to put subjects in their place by concentrating on projects of all sorts, solitary projects, small group projects, large group projects. Projects inevitably will involve a mix of traditional disciplines. What matters is the development of habits of analysis, synthesis, judgment, initiative, originality, not those of passive expectation and memory. You need to raise the bar far enough to avoid the temptations of artificially extending childhood far beyond its natural term, which is over somewhere around the age of seven. Now I know how that must sound to some of you sitting there, but I promise you at least a couple of anecdotes in a while that I think will open your eyes. So to, to do that, to drop artificially extending childhood requires in part a strict avoidance of textbooks written by committees and so-called children's literature in general. You need to raise the bar far enough to admit that the quality of education does not in any way depend on spending money. Benjamin Franklin, a major figure in America's late years as a British colony and its early years as a nation, took for himself a superb education, free of any cost. His, most of his time was spent working at, at, at a working class job 60 hours a week. And since he was a 12 year old, he took this superb education in the spare time that was available. Read his classic autobiography. Boy, if I could do anything for anybody who was a little bit bewildered, I'd say, just read it, put it down, let a day pass, read it again, put it down, read it again, read it minutely. And you'll come to see what a gulf there is between what we do and what we're capable of. So education is not a commodity which can be bought and sold. Schooling is, but not education. It's a good which can with effort be synthesized out of the raw materials of wide experience, 
substantial risk-taking, self-knowledge, the discipline of intense concentration, and broad awareness. The only, in all the studies of genius, the only single quality that seems to unite the whole range, the whole variety of genius, is the ability to single-mindedly concentrate on something. Now, throw yourself back to school, your school days. What does daily training and having your concentration broken over and over and over again by bells and horns and buzzers and insults and, and, and orders to stop doing this and go somewhere else and do that. What does that do, that habit training do, to the ability to concentrate, which is the single determinant most commonly found in people we call geniuses? I mean, you know, I don't have to underline it for you. That alone should cause you to run amok and go into the, you know, the bell system and just smash it or burn it down and say, and I did this as a teacher, I would not accept an interruption of class time. I took, well, I wasn't a sledgehammer, but I took a chair and I knocked the loudspeaker off the wall and I put a sign on the door saying, no messages, no visitors during class time, and that includes school administrators. But every new flood of money into schooling fails to enhance any of the needed things. Instead, it's always spent on interventions, human interventions, machine interventions, interventions into the learning of the young, learning which needs a generous dose of solitude to work correctly. The excessive interventions prevent education from developing as it should. A while ago, I linked the decline of the American nation to the way we school our young instead of aiming to educate them, to the way we train them to lack initiative and imagination, to have a shriveled inner life, to think that mental development is caused by memorizing facts, and so on. Now, in the second part of this presentation, I want to elaborate a bit on the role the college obsession plays in this masterpiece of social engineering. And I'll do that by reading to you from a letter that I just mailed last week to my 16-year-old granddaughter, a girl her parents named Gudrun, but who has renamed herself Christina. <laughs> a letter to my granddaughter. Dear Christina, I heard you were on your way to Dartmouth, one of this country's inner circle elite colleges for an interview. That caused me to realize how short the time is before the world accepts you as grown up, even though for all of human history, 
except this one brief moment, you would have been accepted as grown up for years by now. Your elite high school, Bronx Science, has no doubt been filling your head with the usual propaganda about college in the same fashion that the lower schools in your life filled your head once upon a time with propaganda about Bronx Science. With that in mind, I'm writing to offer you a mantra to chant to yourself silently when confusion descends about what to do about the college decision. I'm tempted to say, please don't waste your time and money by going at all, but instead I'll only say this. College isn't very important unless you convince yourself that it is. But whether you take a degree or not is really only important to those folks who've been psychologically conditioned not to see the truth of things, to lack imagination and initiative, which means most of us, most of us. Let me do the job your school should have done in what I'll say next. In the past 50 years, ever since a phony crisis we call Sputnik was visited upon us, college has been transformed into a genteel racket, an enormous jobs project, illegitimately linked to work, for which it has no inevitable connection. Never mind if you weren't taught about Sputnik. Suffice it to say, it was exactly the same phenomenon your generation has witnessed in the phony crisis of Iraq. If you had been educated instead of school, you might have realized that almost two centuries ago, at the University of Berlin, a legendary philosopher named George Hegel taught the sons of the leading management families of Europe and America that history itself could be precisely controlled by arranging phony crises. Through the vehicle of these imaginary crises, all dissent could be declared illegitimate and the course of history changed radically under the guise that national emergency dictated it. Adolf Hitler is known to have justified his invasion of Poland this way, and for many years now, in scholarly circles, where discussions aren't readily shared with the public, a belief has grown that the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor was itself deliberately provoked in order to take America out of the Depression and to open up Asia for Western development. Whatever the truth in that, Hegel's teaching about the malleability of history through provoking crisis is universally taught to elite seminar classes in elite colleges all over the world. But don't let me digress. In the great scheme of things, college doesn't do much for most of us beyond ritually identifying us as safe members of the right crowd, as obedient as Spartans, and for sale to the highest bidder if needed. This characterization goes double for elite colleges like Dartmouth. 
But a decade after the end of World War II, college wants a retreat from the hurly-burly to travel briefly in the realms of abstract thought was converted wholesale into a utilitarian institution following a plan first proposed by Sir Francis Bacon in his early 17th century utopia, the New Atlantis. Since the word deliberately implies a deliberating mind, I'm obliged to locate that mind for those of you patient enough to follow this presentation. At the time the college obsession was being engineered, it resided in the project offices of a handful of great corporate foundations led by those of Andrew Carnegie and John D. Rockefeller in a handful of key colleges like Yale and Stanford and in the boardrooms of a few private corporations. College is the pinnacle of a tall four-schooling ladder and is a justification to exclude most of the population from positions for which policy is, from which policy is made was a management concept, a plan for comprehensive social and economic organization. It's a dream which has thrilled important people since before biblical Solomon, but which for most of human history remained out of reach. Technological advances in the 19th century changed that reality profoundly. Now there was to be no place private, no place to hide. Institutional schooling had a specific political agenda right from its inception, and nowhere did that agenda have much to do with what ordinary people thought of as education. College is only the cherry on top of the ice cream sundae of forced schooling. Some central goals of the new school ladder were these, to offer heightened surveillance over the common population, together with the means to install predictability and subordination in ordinary people. What Ken Kesey in his novel, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I wrote the college note on that book. Uh, that's probably why I'm bringing it in here. What McKeezy called indwelling curiosity cutoffs. One of the primary assignments was to create an army of clerks and another army of specialists licensed by the political state primarily for the service of the state's managers. Don't regard this as conspiracy in the familiar use of that term. These builders were social engineers operating out of motives which will be lost to you if you regard them simply as greedy people out for personal gain. These were true believers. Their eyes glittered in the dark. They saw universal force schooling with college as its crowning jewel as a necessary precondition for the advent of utopia, a utopia driven by the ideals of the machine, not by any traditions of 
Judeo-Christian morality. This prospective managerial utopia needed to make citizens predictable so they would buy what they were told to buy and would define themselves by their purchases. Once again, not out of simple greed, but because this would ensure the most efficient use of capital. It would reduce risk greatly by canceling the law of supply and demand. After all, if you buy what you are exhorted to buy, the word demand becomes meaningless. And the risky business of free will in commerce and industry would be neutralized. Consumers would demand what they were commanded to demand. Skillful commanding would give rise to increased enthusiasm in following those commands. But what appeared to be free will choice would really only be reflexive mechanical responses. The new utopia required close surveillance of everyone, not only to provide the intimate information necessary to induce demand and to control so-called public opinion, but to identify deviants who might sabotage the new order. It needed constant ranking of the common population, too, so that people would be divided from one another by jealousy and competition and would thus be made self-regulating, as John Calvin had recommended in his institutes way back in the 16th century. Accomplishing these mandates was the assignment of institutional schooling. That's why it had to be forced by the police power of the state. Without this force, this weird new social organism, which had never appeared before in human history, that should be a giveaway to all of you. This supremely parasitic organism would, in due time, have been seen for what it really was and rejected by a libertarian body politic, such as was represented in 19th century America. Universal schooling was meant to create the same kind of social efficiency as is found in a beehive or an anthill. All this wild talk is actually right up on the surface in the writing of the original school architect. But few people take the trouble to hunt these down and read them. If you did, the seeming contradictions of schooling would lose their mystery. Even esoterica, like the toleration of violent classrooms, which is one of the most brilliant divide-and-conquer tactics of them all. I mean, you want to keep young people from associating with one another easily and fluently from people who have probably the same interests they do. You want to divide-and-conquer them and mediate uh, their thoughts and behaviors through an adult authority in a dangerous classroom, this happens. In a dangerous school, this happens. In a school 
layered into gifted and talented honors, gifted and talented special progress, mainstream A, B, C, D, and E, and special education, this happens structurally. I mean, it's a, a laboratory of dividing people from one another who would be natural allies otherwise. Thomas Jefferson, the author of the Declaration of Independence and America's most intellectual early president, clearly understood that the compulsory schooling scheme pr proposed by Spinoza was intended primarily to replace organized religion and to sabotage the imaginative capacities of the ordinary population. In my own country, Horace Mann, supposedly the architect of universal schooling there, told the wealthy he was recruiting to finance the scheme that it would provide the best police for their interests. Quote, best police are his actual words, which you can verify for yourself by reading the splendid biography of Horace Mann written by Jonathan Messerly, which is considered the standard biography. Now, back to the college legend. Legends are wonderful in their ability to fix our attention and animate our feelings. They teach lessons which operate beneath the level of conscious understanding. But it's important to recognize how dangerous legends really are. By foreclosing independent thought, they make clear thinking impossible. Official legends are the worst because while they feel like natural expressions of cultural tradition, what they actually constitute are tools deliberately fashioned to seduce the unwary into someone else's agenda like the invisible weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, the college legend is part of a grander scheme. In the intellectually numb environment of your special high school, you will have heard that a degree from an elite college is such a powerful advantage in later life that its quarter million dollar cost is fully justified. If you were one of the lucky you can afford it, that is. But skip over the morality of the thing and let's concentrate on its truth. Scientifically speaking, this contention about certain colleges, I guess in Canada it would be McGill, is on a par with the theory of the four humors. It's a masterpiece of fabrication. To the extent it appears to be true, Certain things are responsible. Ceaseless propaganda to that end, the rigging of the employment game, and because outspoken critics of this enchantment are marginalized as screwballs. Heavily controlled societies such as our own use myths and illusions just exactly as Plato and other social thinkers have long recommended to colonize the minds of the unwary. One principal function of elite high schools like Bronx Science or
Barnaby South in Canada and the Vancouver area. So one principal function is to specialize in the management of the obviously talented young, conditioning them for service to the management project by the judicious application of carrots and sticks, honors and shamings, rewards and punishments. If you're dubious about this, please read Walter Lippmann's early books and those of Edward L. Bernays, Sigmund Freud's nephew, to find out in detail how this is done and was done, written by people who approved of its being done and who profited directly from it. Edward L. Bernays, Freud's nephew, not only is the principal figure behind the cigarette addiction of women in North America, but he also was Adolf Hitler's public relations counsel. Isn't that an interesting statement for his nephew? Uh, I don't mean to insult you by saying this, but whatever smugness and complacency you've acquired by thinking of yourself as one of the elite needs to be quickly gotten rid of. Let me repeat the topic idea. A degree from a highly ranked school hardly matters in any productive sense in the real world, but it will identify you as a special kind of fool ripe for exploitation. <laughs> the darkness of the world only matters to people who believe the lie, and eventually they pay for that belief with their liberty. The good news is that once freed of the legends which control your actions, anything is possible. The apparent rules of the game are waived for people who know the truth. A neat piece of evidence to prove that, I hope you love this as much as I do, a neat piece of evidence to prove that comes from an unexpected quarter, from the stories of the famous imposters of recent times. Think of Ferdinand de Mera, who won the United States Navy's highest honor, the Navy Cross, for performing successful major surgery aboard a warship under combat conditions off the coast of Korea in heavy weather. Demera was the ship's doctor, but he was neither a doctor or a naval officer. His commission and his medical degree were both phony. <laughs> He grabbed a book off the shelf with illustrations about what to do. And if that seems far-fetched to you, I have an artificial left hip that saved my life. When my daughter was graduating from MIT, we made an appointment to rendezvous together in the orchid jungles of Guatemala atop the pyramids there, and we were going to drive through the Mayan lands, but I, like a good Italian, didn't want to leave anything to chance, so I went down a couple of weeks early. I was going to go through every stage of the thing, so I would seem super competent, you know, when she flew down. And, and sailing along a, a Mexican road at 65 or 70 miles an hour, a gravel truck backed up out of a construction site and I smashed into it and woke up 
in a charity hospital in Monterey, Mexico, uh, under arrest, by the way, for damaging the highway. <laughs> I, I was under armed guard. But I, it, I, you know, so I was watching the roaches crawl across the ceiling of the hospital and trying desperately to get out. I didn't know that the car looked like a piece of popcorn or crumpled paper uh, there. When the doctor who had operated on me and put an artificial hip in came in, hugged me and said, you are alive. I knew it. He said, I had a, I never did this operation, he said, but I had a German textbook. Look, he said, and it told me everything to do in the pictures. <laughs> so, uh, next consider this. Who could believe a decade ago that it would be possible to pilot a huge modern aircraft with some precision, with only rudimentary training. But now we have a spectacular deconstruction of the World Trade Center to show how we've all been misled. And here's another story, really worth your time to look up on the internet. Only a few years ago, the famous and historic financial house of Barings in London was bankrupted by the imaginative frauds of a young fellow who was an absolute rookie at the money game. I mean, Barings raised the money for the Napoleonic Wars. The experienced policymakers at Barings, a pillar of British economic life, had no defense adequate to save it from the charm and plausible storytelling of the young criminal who first got himself hired, then reported making spectacular profits in such a convincing fashion that all the skepticism of the sophisticated executive staff gave way to this Pied Piper who did not have an MBA from Harvard or the London School of Economics. I mean, he, he threw away every penny they had. The best explanation for unlikely happenings like this, which occur far more frequently than you're allowed to know, is that school and popular journalism both fill our minds with legends about how the world works, legends which are often not the way it works at all. But notice that intense self-teaching and strong self-motivation can open the locked vaults at bearings, collapse tall buildings, and win mastery of medical secrets without any help from Harvard or the American Medical Association. Indeed, as you'll learn in a minute, you can build a private moon rocket without a high school education and sell seats on the thing for $200,000 a piece before it's even built. I'm not maintaining school can't teach you something. It can. For instance, it can condition you to certain mechanical behaviors, certain habits and attitudes, which may be modestly useful. In only a few hours of training drills, it's possible to learn how to take a combat rifle apart and put it back together blindfolded. 
but creative work and critical thought which produces new knowledge cannot be so conditioned. Indeed, too much conditioning prevents these desirable talents from ever forming. The October 8, 2007 issue of New Yorker magazine, so it's probably still out on the open shelves in this library, printed a long account of a 37-year-old black woman's rise to importance in the international art world, a career she only began to pursue 13 years ago at age 24. The account opens in a Moroccan restaurant in Paris with the artist's nine-year-old daughter Octavia, concentrating so fixedly on her mother being interviewed, sketching her, that the writer is quite impressed. How had this little girl developed the ability to set aside every distraction? Well, little Octavia has serious aspirations to career in fashion, and her mother, the artist Kara Walker, isn't making the kid wait her turn until she's much older to pursue these aspirations. Little Octavia could care less about getting an A-plus or being patronized with an isn't-that-nice dismissal. The girl is currently in Paris to help her mother set up a major retrospective of her artworks. Mother creates very impolite art, racially charged, painting slaves involved in homosexual acts with white owners, murals of black girls being violated by monkeys and other white male fantasies. In all this, nine-year-old Octavia is pressed into service to help as fully as an adult would be. In one of Walker's short films shown at the exhibition, a slave girl is pursued by a white man as little Octavia chants on the soundtrack, I wish I were white, and maybe all of this will dream away, and I will disappear. The relationship of mother-daughter and aspects of significant lives allowed me to see behind the scrim of artificially extended childhood into a different possibility for the human beings we call children, one in which children are fully encouraged not to be children at all, but simply to be people. The article I'm citing ends with Kara Walker remembering an event which happened when little Octavia was four and she was watching Kara being honored in a restaurant by a group of admirers. After passively looking on for a time, four-year-old Octavia said in exasperation, Kara Walker, Kara Walker, when is it going to be my turn? That's the trouble with all kinds of abstract schooling, even the best, which I know you hope to encounter at Dartmouth. Schooling keeps delaying your turn. For most of us, our turn is delayed so long, we end up never getting a turn at all from cradle to grave. I would not be so brutal in describing college's questionable relationship with competency 
except that it wastes a critical stage of life and the opportunity to find a worthwhile personal path, an opportunity which may never return. The connection between college training and excellence remains unproven in any acceptable way. Indeed, the way college is urged in America through assertion and bombast, not proof, has a name in logic. It's called begging the question. Ignorant people and bullies beg the question all the time. So do politicians. Charlatans beg the question too. But decent people scorn that instrument. Consider the Alice in Wonderland chaos which would instantly occur if students from kindergarten onwards were granted the right to ask the question, why exactly are we doing this? And unless it were answered to their satisfaction, would have the right to do something different. School affairs have reached the critical condition they are in at present because they trumpet their values so noisily and preach their commitment to developing each student's personal best, but they don't even try to make good on that promise. School is a liar's world, and as more and more of us discover that, we begin to make it hot for the institution. In these days of the Internet, what I've been saying ought to be self-evident to all of you. Although most institutional employees don't mean you any harm, they can't help it. The trouble is built into the structural DNA, the genetic code of bureaucracy. You can't commence real education by fitting individuals into categorical boxes. Only through commitment to one-of-a-kind real people needs, like Octavia Walker's, who was really speaking for every four-year-old when she demanded to know when it would be her turn. Find a copy. This is not rhetorical. Do this. And I don't even like this guy. Find a copy of Richard Branson's autobiography. He's the founder of Virgin Atlantic Airlines and one of the 50 wealthiest men on earth. And as I promised you earlier, he's the perspective builder of a private rocket ship for which all the seats are already sold. When Branson was four years old, just like Octavia, his mom drove him miles from his London home, let him out of the car, and told him to find his own way back home, which he did. That was the making of him, he reports in his autobiography. Like Octavia, he was given a turn at age four, and he pulled it off. Nothing would ever frighten him again. Later, he dropped out of high school, avoided going to college, and had his first successful business at age 19. That's how you get private moon rockets built, by giving the future builders a turn at four, not by frightening them into conformity, by tales of the horrible lives which await the degreeless. Every year, Forbes magazine prints a list of the 400 richest Americans. The 2007 list identifies five of the top ten richest 
as college or high school dropouts, none of whom ever went back, five of the top ten, in spite of all the prejudice. And plenty of the remaining 390 are dropouts too, a list which includes Steven Spielberg of Star Wars fame, who dropped out of Cal State Long Beach, not Harvard, Barry Diller, who founded Fox Broadcasting after dropping out of UCLA, not Yale, Ted Turner, the dropout who founded CNN, Paul Orfalia, the founder of Kinko's, who didn't need to drop out because he never attended, and all the many dropouts who gave the United States computer dominance, including Bill Gates, Paul Allen, Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, Michael Dell, and Larry Ellison. Don't tell your parents, I, I'm, this is to my granddaughter, I'm asking you to avoid college or to drop out even when you get there. What I'm asking you to do is to search for the truth, to think for yourself, and to avoid situations where independent thought isn't welcome. Personally, I attended two Ivy League colleges, Cornell and Columbia, and a few others to boot. I have two college degrees and plenty of postgraduate work. I even taught college at the City University of New York for five years. And according to the Student Evaluation Handbook, I was the highest rated faculty member at the entire university. I can't remember a single class I took at Cornell or Columbia, and to be honest, what I do remember vividly is the endless vacation, the non-stop parties, the promiscuous sex, the cult of alcohol worship, the can-do attitude toward narcotic drugs. I remember the poker for very high stakes once a week in the law school lounge, and the endless pool sessions, every one of them grouped about the topic of scheming for material advantage, how to game the system. That's what my hard-working middle-class parents, your great-grandparents, paid with their sweat and anxiety to buy for their son. Fool's gold. According to Alan Kruger, a Princeton economist, and Stacy Dale of the Andrew Mellon Foundation, students who enter elite colleges when evaluated 20 years after graduation don't make any more money and aren't any more prominent than the group accepted to those same colleges who didn't attend but did something else. Now connect the dots. If money and status are your goals, only a fool would go to Harvard and Yale and pay a fortune. And if wisdom is your goal, you can't be so naive to believe it even enters the equation at Dartmouth or Stanford. Indeed, you'll be lucky to survive as a decent human being if you fall into the culture of Dartmouth or wherever. Billy Graham didn't have a divinity degree or a single college course. He was a fuller brush salesman door to door before he decided to be Billy Graham. 
Now push the idea a little further. What those numbers are saying loud and clear is that elite colleges don't add value to their undergraduates in a weird inversion. It's the selection procedure, not the faculty of the course offerings, that produce the illusion. The students bring the value to the colleges with them, and those elite colleges only admit young people with a record of distinction, and by that they don't mean high grades. Harvard turns down 80% of the valedictorians that apply, and Princeton and Stanford have no illusions about grades either. Both turned down last year hundreds of kids with perfect SAT scores and perfect grade point averages. So much for the legend of scholarship. Beloit College, where's that, has a higher percentage of its graduates in who's who than Duke University does. Millsaps, where's that, has a higher percentage than Georgetown, and I'll drop dead if anyone ever told you about Millsaps or even knows where it is at your high school. Dartmouth has lower medical school aptitude tests than Ohio Wesleyan. Georgetown lower scores than Muhlenberg, and Berkeley lower scores than Carleton. A recent University of Connecticut study of 16,000 college students measured in five academic areas, first as entering freshmen and then again as graduating seniors, revealed Dartmouth to be one of 16 colleges studied where the graduating seniors knew less than they did as entering freshmen. <laughs> what do you suppose that tells you? <laughs> Ignore thinking about it at your own peril. You will be no more immune than the rest were to these invisible forces at work. We've only got another five minutes. And I'll bet they didn't tell you up at Bronx Science that the CEO of Walmart, the world's largest corporation, is a graduate of tiny Pittsburgh State College in Kansas, or that the founder of Walmart didn't go to college at all. I know it isn't fair that people your age are compelled to trust people my age to tell the truth. What we ought to let you know is how much it profits us to spin the plates before your eyes and to hypnotize you. Listen, kid, experts are always hired guns. There aren't any exceptions to that. They make a living working for managers who have an axe to grind. That's why the classical Greeks had so much contempt for specialists. They figured that anyone so unbalanced as to become a specialist had signals that they have bad judgment. For experts, the pursuit of truth takes a back seat to that most special interest of all, self-interest. That doesn't mean that experts know nothing or even that they don't tell the truth from time to time. It just means you can never count on that. So stay away. Think for yourself, caveat emptor has survived the test of history, not because it sounds pretty, but because it's almost always true.
genuinely elite education is always built around imagination, dialectical training, and other aspects of rhetoric, and those disciplines which nourish the inner life, all of which are weapons to prevent the colonization of your mind by authorities more sophisticated than yourself. The lip service paid to these qualities in factories like Bronx Science isn't nearly enough to protect you. You'll have to do it on your own. By now I've lectured in every American state and in a dozen nations around the world. This year I spoke in half a dozen Australian cities, did talks and workshops in Budapest, and delivered the keynote speech in Seoul, Korea at its National Education Convention. In all those places, my hosts assumed I had a pretty good education, and they were right. But if they thought the colleges I spent so many years inside had much to do with that, they were wrong. My own best intellectual training was self-administered after I woke up one day in my middle 30s to a realization just how ignorant I really was with my two college degrees and all the postgraduate study. That ignorance frightened and humbled me. So for the past 35 years, I've been on a round-the-clock personal quest to undo what school training did to me. Don't you fall into the same trap. Good luck. Much love, granddad. Thank you very much.
satisfied with the at all with the academic kind of machine, but I, I don't know if I'd really want to be a quote-unquote successful person like uh, Bill Gates or... Uh, well, let me ask you this. Do you have, uh, do you have enough self-confidence or willpower to assemble the moving parts of your own education? If we were able to allow you to do that easily. I mean, obviously it can be done, but you have to grit your teeth and put up with a lot of nonsense. But suppose that systematically we allowed open source education and that you could go anywhere and take... Isn't that what the Internet is screaming that you can do? Countries like Sweden have been... T taking preliminary steps in that direction for decades. The, the whole school suite, uh, sequence in Sweden isn't 12 years long, it's nine years long. And one of those years, if you make a case, you can go anywhere in the world and you'll be subsidized by the Swedish government to follow your own star. I don't think I've ever heard of a piece of Swedish machinery or merchandise that anyone ever said, oh, it's junk, you know, or, or there's no quality control there. Now, what interests me is that knowledge like that, or the fact that in Switzerland, which, which is per capita the wealthiest country in the world, only one out of four people go to high school, let alone go to college. That they built this powerful, broadly prosperous society. I mean, I don't care for the Swiss side, but nevertheless, you have to give credit where if you want to live that way, you know, there, there, there aren't too many poverty pockets. They've never followed this addiction with schooling as, as, as the road. The reason I use these uh, potent names is that I don't want to appear to be some guru leading people into a, a world that they think is wrongly so, but that they think is uh, second best or third best. If they're impressed by people like Bill Gates, I'm not. I threw away my computer a couple of years ago. I recognize its value, but uh, it, it's more of a nuisance. I mean, a net, it's an interference with the good life. And that's my decision. I wouldn't proselytize that, that with you. Uh, Paul Orphalia, who founded Kinko's, was declared brain damaged by his high school. His parents were told, uh, I met him two years ago in Santa Barbara, California. His parents were told not to waste their time hoping that he could go to college because there's no possibility he could handle the work. My own mother was told the same thing about me in junior high school by the school principal that I should learn a trade so I wouldn't become a public charge. <laughs> I mean, 
mean, this enterprise that we've set up has many, many aspects of Alice in Wonderland to it. That's all. How about another tough question? Yes, sir. What do you believe is the best method for undoing all the damage of our school, of our formal school? Well, the best method's pretty easy if you're talking about yourself. If you're looking for a system to replace the current system, you can waste the rest of your life you know, standing on soapboxes. That's why I try to avoid uh, the, the arguments that, that a whole lot of worried people just think are, are gas. From a national point of view, it's suicidal to continue this kind of schooling because we cannot compete in a mechanical, productive sense. And that's not John Gatter speaking to you. That's the Financial Times of London and everybody in the financial press. But they can't compete with the potent changes that imagination can wrought. I mean, their mechanical schooling is even more mechanical than our own. That's, that's why I get hired to go to China. That's why I got invited to the secret conference in Beijing last fall where they only invited people to suggest ways to open the imagination you know of the the, the, the Chinese student body but they don't want the social effects of empowering individuals Singapore which is a spectacularly prosperous society. I guess a lot of you have been to Singapore. Singapore's hired me six times because as they imposed Western schooling and ratcheted higher and higher, they noticed the deterioration of family respect, of respect for authority, the rise in kind of white-collar dishonesty. And I always say the same thing. I guess they don't believe it. I say, to the extent that you process young people this way, you should expect that you're going through the best times, that this has got a lot worse direction it's headed in. Yes, sir? I meant personally, how do you undo the damage personally after you realize that Okay, well, every philosopher, there are any exceptions to this, every major philosopher in human history has said that the first piece of work is self-knowledge. That's not just rhetoric or gas. You have to understand where, what made you pick up uh, uh, meditations of Marcus Aurelius who was hardly an academic, he was the most powerful man in the world, combined with the wealthiest man in the world. And he starts off his meditations, which have remained in print for thousands of years, analyzing where the elements in his personality came from. 
I'm sure many people who read that turn past that section. Don't be self-knowledge is where it's at. What do you want to chase prizes that, 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 that fly in the face of your own values? Like, like this gentleman in the back here. Essentially, that's what he was saying. He didn't want to hear about, you know, Bill Gates and company. Because that didn't seem like a, 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 a worthy destination for his life. doesn't to me either. But I also know the realities of getting an audience to think. And if I start talking about the Dalai Lama, you know, and secular sainthood, uh, you know, the eyes glaze over and... Uh, and, 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 and the moderator says, I, we seem to be out of time. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Is there any model of a, a free school or democratic schools that you particularly admire? Yes. Yeah. The question was, is there any model of a free school or a democratic school which I admire? Fortunately, there are a legion of such models. They all follow some individual prescription. You have a chance on uh, what day's Matt coming? Saturday. Saturday. Come in and I always say, Yo, Matt. Come on, you got to play a lot of it. Yo, Matt. <laughs> Matt understands how it's done. Matt started off working in a in a school that I personally wouldn't want to go to, but it filled me with admiration. It was called Virtual High in, uh, in Vancouver, Canada. Anybody know Virtual High? Yeah, uh, it's founded by some intense Scottish philosopher. I mean, this guy, inside of three minutes talking to him, uh, he's a wonderful human being. But he quickly connects with, uh, you know, the higher levels of abstract thought, even though virtual high was really nitty-gritty. It wrote, for example, a publicity program for uh, uh, BC Hydroelectric that uh, the kids were paid, I don't know, $50,000 for. And they probably were cheated, you know, because BC Hydroelectric used it everywhere. You have to engage in reality. You don't want to be reserved from the real world. Four-year-old Octavia Walker, when is it my turn, Kara Walker? That was her mother. Well, at nine, she's in Paris participating in this sort of radical art tradition but not being patted on the head. Uh, Branson, he steps up. His mother actually asked him, Richard, do you think you could find your way home from here? And little four-year-old Richard said he thought he could, and she opened the door of the car, and she said, well, get out and do so. And off she drove. I mean, she didn't spy from a distance on him. Try to imagine step by step the challenges he would have encountered, the resources he would have had to draw on, moving from neighborhood to neighborhood until he got there, and tell me what amount of classroom schooling and bells ringing and tests could possibly 
equal what happened over the <coughs> excuse me six or eight hours it took the four-year-old boy to get home. Uh, read the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. You'll find that after working a 60-hour week at age 12, having been thrown out of two schools, by the way, as a rotten kid, Franklin puts himself, and his friends do too, through a course of study that I guarantee you that McGill or Harvard wouldn't dream of asking of their undergraduates. This is a 12-year-old colonial hick from a working class family of candle makers, for God's sake. This is the man who financed the American Revolution by talking the French of all people. Oi, man, the French. <laughs> a working class American talked the French out of so much money that sophisticated historians believe that that was the cause of the French Revolution, because the king had used that money that he gave to Franklin, you know, to bribe and pay off and to pour oil on the waters, and he didn't have it to give away. Yes, sir? Um, nice loud voice, so we can all hear you. Okay. Well, should we be telling the students what school is doing to them? And if we can't, what should we do? Well, that, of course, seems to be the question. What should we do to change the system? And yet, as soon as you <coughs> fall into that seemingly perfectly reasonable trap, what you're really saying is, what system shall we replace this system with? It's a contradiction of what human beings are. Why do you think you have a fingerprint except to tell you that while you superficially are like everybody else, you really are completely unique? So you can't get an education without identifying your own uniqueness, identifying the, uh, the uh, paths of growth that you've had some experience with, and searching for the experiences that will accelerate that process, or at least do it most efficiently. It sounds a lot more complicated than it is. For about six years, I did it, I did it, I did it with 120 kids a year, and I never succeeded in reaching the 120, but year after year, 75%, at the end of the year, their lives would be permanently changed because they would see that an education has to be taken. Nobody can give you one. And so to migrate from guru to guru is exactly the wrong thing to do. My daughter wrote me as a freshman at MIT how she despised the teaching faculty except for one person. And then she spent pages explaining why, you know, he had the torch to follow. And I wrote her back and said, it's people exactly like that, or like me, who keep this institution alive. You know, people can say, oh, if we only had more John Gattos or 
Professor X says, no, we're the villains of the piece. You are the architect of your education. That is not rhetoric. It's the only way, you're the only one who has the precise data to know what you mean. So if you spend your safe time hunting for someone to tell you what to do, you're nuts. Soon enough, the pressures of the world will come so thick and fast, you know, that only drink can help. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, sir. <laughs> 25 years ago, when I was going to electronics college in Toronto, I met a Russian immigrant. He's a young man, about maybe 25 or so. And uh, his parents had retired. I mean, they reached retirement age of 65, and the Russian government at that time said, you can get lost and you don't take a pension. You know? Anyway, um, he, he told about his Russia. They had a system that had been going for a long time, uh, for probably 50 years. The pioneers. What they did, they took a uh, they took a couple they did, they took a number of men from industry, of individuals from industry, right? Uh, you know, machinists, uh, draftsmen, uh, architects, whatever, that that were interested in working with young people. And they they the government would provide a building with a heat and electricity, and they uh, they get uh, tool and die equipment and whatever machine shop equipment required and set it up. And it was sort of like an organized club. And they would recruit from the streets. The, the, the teenagers that had dropped out of high school, they were raising hell in the street, right? And they'd take them and they'd put them in this, they'd, they'd bring them into this club situation. And this young chap was building, build, build, uh, building an artificial heart. And he'd been doing that for some years. And all the materials were provided by the state from used equipment from different state industries and, and used equipment. And I, I look at the West here, down in the United States, we have enormous amounts of this used equipment, but we just melt it down for scrap metal or ship it off to some other place, look at computer parts and so on. And we have never done anything like this. You know? Uh, about 10 years ago, United Technologies Corporation, which has 32 operating divisions all over the world, hired me to go up to, uh, to Connecticut and sit around with the big shots because they had decided, their wives had decided, that they should take a stake in altering education in Connecticut. And they said, what did I think they should do? I said, it seems to me that in every one of your 32 operating divisions, you're constantly running trials for different te technological improvements, uh, different products and things like that. And were you to take people in, not as classes, but as individuals, and assign them to these hundreds of working groups by the end of the trial and error process, which would produce success in some cases and failure in most cases, the kid would never again be the same person. He would have had the curtain pulled back and see how high-level reality and thinking and team or how it actually works. They looked at each other nervously 
that what they they said, well, we were really thinking of where we should give money to. I said, money always ends up the same way, always. It ends up buying either people or machinery to intervene into the learning process and pass the very, very easily achieved uh, early level. The interventions paralyze the educational process there. It's self-discovery. If, if there were any exceptions philosophically to this at all, but coming from different traditions, everyone arrives at the same conclusion. Know yourself, and then all these difficulties will vanish. Yes, sir? First, are you cold? Am I cold? I learned something growing up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, is that what you can't change Forget, just forget, put it out of your mind. The answer is no, I'm not cold, but now that you mention it, it's cool. <laughs> Bear with me because I'm freezing, so my oh, question oh. is going to be kind of interrupted. You come from a warmer uh, place then. Throughout your talk, I felt that the measure for success was based on how much fortune is being built. No, that was. Uh, the natural mistake to follow in the, the back. That is not so. I take those examples because for the most part, and every audience I speak to is different, these are well-known names. They're names whose uh, lives affect all of our lives. Uh, here, uh, let me pass these. Uh, I, I, have a, I want to reach another idea. Oh, okay, you yeah, reach it. Reach. Um, well, see, that's what I told them, frozen. <laughs> so, um, I feel that in order to maintain success in community, we need to maintain quality. And to maintain quality, I also feel strongly about standardized testing because it screens and keeps a certain amount of people who will be capable of leading the community to higher levels. That's certainly exactly what the mainstream logic says. And I would I would be in despair unless we had a, a long time and a big pitcher of tea in front of us. I would just be in despair. Standardization and high standards aren't even remotely the same thing. The idea of standardization comes from the medieval guilds, which you are all propagandized to think raise the level of silver work and so on. They did not do that. The working rules of a guild are that nobody in the guild may improve their own work unless the whole guild agrees to it. Nobody can take more business than anyone else in the guild. You know, it was a monopoly of certain kinds of work, but rather than it did what Bill Gates and his lousy, uh, what's that thing called, Windows system has done. It sort of blocked advances in the field. Standardized tests. This is not my opinion. There have been 
approximately 100 major studies that cost more money than any individual or small school could do, trying to show that standardized test scores correlate with anything. None of them show positive correlations with anything except your score on the next test. And a few of them show negative correlations. That is, the people who do best on the test don't do best in competition with lower people. In business, the C students far and away dominate the great corporations, the C students. In medicine, it's the B minus students, not the stars. And in law, it's the B plus students, not the law review types. But you can't share that truth democratically without raising such skepticism about the whole enterprise that it's just not talked about. You want to dig for this information, I mean, nobody's burned it up, it's there, but no one will tell you it's there. I, I realize we've only been together a couple of hours. What I tried to do was give you substantive data. If I had talked about gurus, and, and I don't, I'm sorry for the sarcasms in my voice, if I had talked about really successful people, for example, if you've been married for 50 years, and you love your wife, your husband, more now than you did when, you know, that, then you're a successful person. If your children enjoy their time with you after they've grown up, you're a successful person. But if you don't have anyone to hug, I don't mean to hug you, to hug in your life, I feel terribly sorry for you. I mean, you failed in the most important area of all. That's why we get these wild-eyed people who have utopian projects. Because they're failures. And living, you've got a finite amount of time. Every life is an arc. In fact, when kids ask me the question, this young fellow did I often say, I can't think of anything better than to read hundreds of obituaries, because the arc of a life is inscribed in the good ones. And after a while, you see how the patterns work. And they don't work following the formula of high-grade special schools, diplomas. That's not how it works. It's how you're supposed to think it works. Or otherwise, the system comes apart without your faith in it. That's why I said at the beginning, you're the own, your own biggest obstacle in the path of raising the bar. Yes, ma'am. Let me see if I can tell them. 
the, the woman over here is saying that her important learnings came from, from a, a social environment and that it seems to be missing in, funny, it's less missing in Canada than in the States. It's missing because it, it can't coexist with, with these formulaic rules for procedure in every aspect of your life. The two can't coexist. And so you get rid of the one that doesn't lead to social control or maximization of profit or efficiency and stuff like that. You know, why I'm fumfering here is I realize that time's short and I, I, I sense a hovering over here. <laughs> It must have something to do about us getting thrown out of this room. Uh, I would be happy to sit here with you until we all fell asleep, but I have a feeling Sarah Lawrence, what an interesting name, huh? Uh, yes, Sarah, here's your mic. Okay. Just as we're about to wrap up, I'm going to make a few quick announcements that we can carry the discussion to wherever we prefer to carry it. Um, just to remind you all, the conference continues until Saturday uh, with speakers Cindy Milstein on Thursday, Tara Gannett and Gilles Lalonde of the Miss G Project on Friday, and then Matt Hearn, as you heard, on Saturday. Um, tomorrow's going to be a film night in this space, same time, same place, but the films haven't actually arrived in the mail yet at my place, so I'm guessing we may have to show a different film, which is equally amazing, called... Free to Learn, a Radical Experiment in Education. It's about the Albany Preschool, and it's a fairly, fairly exciting film. <laughs> Somebody asked the schools you admire, Albany Preschool is one of them. Yeah, so if those films don't show up tomorrow, that's going to be the default film, so it's still worth coming out one way or the other. And also during the day tomorrow, we're going to have three separate workshops. They're going to be at the Institute for Women's Studies at Ottawa U. They're going to be, um, one is about militarization in education, one is about de-schooling or unschooling sports education, and Justin Barca is going to bring some of his, uh, I don't know what you call them, circus toys, I guess, to show you how to use a different kind of uh, sport that doesn't involve like, competition. And then the last workshop is going to be from Naomi, who's in the back, who actually spent several months in a Zionist camp to understand the mentality that happens in that environment, and then did solidarity work in Palestine to learn a whole other side of the debate, and I'm probably misconstruing it all, but it's a way of self-educating a very complex social situation or social phenomenon, and she'll be speaking about other experiences she has in the de-schooling process, traveling around the U.S. and attending different events and meeting all kinds of crazy people. So it's going to be a really exciting day. And I don't know if the donation jar ever went around. They're starting, the first one's at 11.30, the next one's at 1.30, the next one's at 3.30. There's a magnificent Canadian woman in, in partial answer to the question, are the schools I admire? Who asked that one? I did. Okay. Her name's Wendy Prysnitz, spelled P-R-I-E-S-N-I-T-Z. Wendy, I, I, I don't have words to describe how spectacular she is, but she publishes two magazines. They're primarily uh, written from a homeschooling perspective, but anyone 
would find them filled with, just crackling with ideas. And when he gives a conference, I think, once a year where people who do practical things are all assembled together. Does anybody know Wendy's address? I know that you would find her on the internet. P-R-I-E-S-N-I-T-Z. And she's involved in a number of schools. There's Matt Hearn's school. The Albany Free School was set up to earn, I mean, this is only one aspect of it, to earn enough money in the course of the school day and year not only to pay all the expenses of the school, but to pay the rent of the parents who sent their kids to school. Is that a, a goal that would lead to some excitement? And yes, they succeeded. Although I took a, I took a friend from China up to see them once, and they keep a herd of goats. They, they have a quadrangle. They bought all the buildings. They were all decayed, coming apart in Albany in a square. So they have a central, all the central yards make a square. And they keep a herd of goats there, and they milk it, and sell the goat's milk fudge and stuff like that. And the, the woman I brought from China couldn't see what was going on because she couldn't associate goats with scholarship or learning or education there. But that's, that's another one. They're, they, they're truly all over the place. They follow their own logics, and none of them attempt to be the new system to replace the horrible system that we already have, which I hope you notice. You don't have to believe this, but from my point of view, the more efficient and and highly praised the school is, the worse in its human effects it is. So if I could keep my granddaughter out of college entirely, I would. But if she's going to go, she may as well go to Beloit or Carleton or Ohio Wesleyan or Pittsburgh State in Kansas. If you've heard of the school respectfully, it's a bad place. It's been done. <laughs> My big book, The Underground History of American Education, sells in bookstores for $35 a copy, but every word of it is up on my website. www.johntaylorgatto.com and so is, I'm sorry that you can't see this, we have 128 acres in upstate New York between Ithaca and Cooperstown called Solitude. And as long as you'll shut up, you're all welcome to bring a tent to Solitude, pick five acres, there's nine ponds. Here, tell them how pretty it is. <laughs> it's quite lovely. And we bought it sight unseen. Because <laughs> it was so cheap. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Thank you very much. <laughs>